The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Selected Verses from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here and we are delighted to have you with us this morning. We are continuing a study, concluding a study actually, in the Ten Commandments this morning. So we have been in the book of Deuteronomy, and if you've been with us, you'll know that we have slowed down to study week by week each of these Ten Commandments, and we come this morning to the tenth and final commandment. And if you have some way, somehow, some way, tap danced your way through the minefield of the first nine commandments without sinning, you will not survive this morning. Uh, None of us make it through this one. Do not covet. It's really fascinating. Jesus summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And each week we've pointed out that the Ten Commandments nest very cleanly in one of those two categories. The first four commandments seem to be directed at that loving the Lord our God piece, right? Having no other gods, making no images, no idols for ourselves, not taking the Lord's name in vain, honoring the Sabbath day. And then five through 10 turn towards a a horizontal dimension, towards our neighbor. Uh, They all seem to deal with loving our neighbor, all five through 10. What's interesting about those is if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, all of those neighbor commands, five through 10, have five through nine anyway that we've looked at so far, have something of an external feature to them. What I mean by that is you can tell whether someone is keeping them or not, at least on a surface level. Certainly possible to hide your violations of them, but the violations of them often are, are tangible. Someone could catch you in the act of bearing false witness or stealing or what have you. But coveting 
is a different animal. Coveting is, is internal. All of the others begin in the heart and move outward, but this one, in, in some sense, stays inside of you. Most of the time, the only ones who really know whether you have violated this commandment or not are you and God. And so as we finish the Ten Commandments this morning, as we consider why God would finish with this commandment, I wonder if the answer to that question, why this one, is not something like God wants to finish. He's, he's addressed so many areas of external obedience that also, of course, have connections to our heart. But he wants to drive home here at the end that he is a God who is not after mere external obedience that he is a God who is after our hearts. He is after all of us. Not simply what we do, but who we are. You can see our outline there in your bulletin. It's very similar to the ones we've been using in weeks past. We'll look at the intention of the commandment, the meaning of the commandment, and finally the hope for forgiveness and formation. So that's our roadmap this morning. Before we set out, let me pause and pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time in God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, your word is no empty word. It is no vain word. It is our very life. You've told us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we have gathered this morning to feast. We ask that as we open your word together, you would set a feast before us in the presence of our enemies. Would goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, even this morning? Would you help us to behold wondrous things from your law? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Well, in his book, In the Kingdom of Ice, the author Hampton Sides tells the story of a 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeanette. It was captained by Lieutenant George DeLong. The entire expedition rested on a picture of the North Pole that was laid out in the maps of one Dr. August Heinrich Peterman. Peterman's map suggested that there was something called a thermometric gateway through the ice of the Arctic Circle that would open up onto this vast polar sea on top of the world. Essentially, he theorized that there was a fair weather passage to get through all of the ice. And so as they set out for the North Pole, DeLong bet everything on these maps. Everything was bet on the fact that that picture was right. And these maps were right. And that when they got there, they would find this gateway. And of course, it was ultimately a bet that he would lose. The gateway did not exist. The maps were wrong. And the USS Jeanette was ultimately trapped in the Arctic ice where DeLong and his men were forced to abandon it as the ice crushed it and it ultimately sank. And they had to begin making their way towards the Siberian coast. And most of them did not survive, all because of some faulty maps. It was a deadly misorientation, as it were. 
And I begin with that story because I think the 10th commandment, do not covet, is addressing an orientation for us, an aim, a direction of our hearts. You see, I think each of us has a picture, a map, if you will, of the good life. We have a picture of the life that we want and we've aimed ourselves at it. We've bet everything on these maps. And it is as if the 10th commandment comes along and says, those are the wrong maps. There's no there, there. The intention of the commandment, what's behind it, God longs for his people to reorient themselves toward the actual good life as he has laid it out. Life as it was meant to be lived, which is life with him, dependent upon him and his good provision. I think this is actually the lesson that God is trying to teach Israel over and over again in the story of the Exodus. Think how often in that story, we, we come across God providing for them in some miraculous way, only for them to immediately start complaining again. So he delivers them out of Egypt, right? He parts the Red Sea. Israel crosses on dry land and right as they make it across and Pharaoh and his armies enter into the dry land, the waters come back, drowns their enemies. They're saved. It's a miracle to, to end all miracles. God has provided for them graciously. And then we read three days later, they are moaning because there's no water. Instead of turning to God, who's just done this miracle, asking him to provide, they are complaining. And God, anyway, provides. He has Moses throw a log into some undrinkable water. And again, miraculously, it becomes drinkable. God provides for them. And then a few verses later, the grumbling starts again. Exodus 16.3 reads, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, think about that for a minute. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've had water magically turned drinkable by a log thrown into it. And they are complaining again. They wanna go back into slavery. At least the food was good. And how does God respond to them? Not with lightning like you and I would, right? Enough of this, enough of these people. He makes it rain bread. He gives them manna, magic bread from heaven. He provides for them again. Over and over again, God is trying to show his people, if you will just trust me, I will provide for you. In so many ways, this question is at the heart of the story of the Bible. Will humanity trust God? Will we trust him? It's certainly at the heart of the story of the fall in Genesis 3, right? The serpent comes in and asks Adam and Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? That's right. What had God said to them? He had said you could eat of all of them except for one. But at the heart of the serpent's question, what he knew he was doing was this, I mean, can you trust him? What's the big deal with the one tree? Sounds like he's holding out on you to me. 
Can you trust him? And we have been asking that question ever since. I think it's an important question because the root of all coveting is the assumption that we cannot, that we cannot trust God, that somehow he is holding out on us. And it's here that we need to turn our attention to the meaning of the commandment. What does it actually mean to covet or not to covet? The word covet actually simply means to desire. And the commandment tells us that we are not to desire that which is our neighbor's. Now, it's important to say desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. The Bible actually commends desire in in its proper place. So Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, God has created us with desires. We are desiring beings. But to go back to that illustration of orientation, God has created us as desiring beings, but our true north is him. When our hearts are set on him, he gives us what we want, and that is a good thing. As St. Augustine wrote in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So it's not desire itself that is wrong. It's when we desire wrong things or good things in the wrong way that we get into trouble. So how do you know? How do you know if we want the right things in the right way? Well, the 10th commandment actually tells us, it tells us watch what your heart does when you look at your neighbor and what they have. If you wanna know if you're coveting or not, here's the litmus test for you. How do I view what God has given my neighbor? Do I delight in God's goodness to them? Or do I subtly resent them and God because he has not given those things or that person or that situation or that job to me? Inevitably, when our desires are misoriented, it affects our relationship with God and with our neighbors. You know you have moved into the realm of coveting when you stop thinking about the thing itself and you start thinking about the person who has the thing. So a good desire for a healthy marriage turns into why do they have it so easily? You know you've moved into the realm of coveting when everything becomes a zero-sum game. Everything that someone else has is something that you do not. It's not just, wouldn't it be nice to have that? It's, and wouldn't it be nice if you didn't? This is what God is calling us away from in this commandment. He wants us to desire the right things in the right way. And he wants us to trust his provision, both for us and for our neighbor. I think the rubber really meets the road on this when our neighbor gets something that we have been asking God for. And they get it and we don't. In that moment, we will be tempted to believe that God is holding out on us. And we will be tempted to hate our neighbor because it appears he is not holding out on them. So perhaps you are here this morning and you're a college student. 
you're coming towards the end of your time and you'd like to get married and all that seems to happen is that every single one of your friends is getting engaged. Are you able in that moment to be happy for your friends, even as you grieve that you're not getting the thing, this good thing that you want? Or perhaps you're a little bit further down the road, you've gotten married, you long for children, a good gift from the Lord. And the Lord, for whatever reason, has said, not yet. And all you seem to get in the mail are invitations to baby showers. Obedience to the 10th commandment, I think, means being able to live in the tension of wanting those good things, and they are good things. Not getting it, maybe even grieving that we haven't gotten it, and then not letting our disappointment turn towards resentment to our neighbor or to our God. Indeed, as we grow as followers of Jesus, not only are we able to avoid resentment, but bit by bit, we find ourselves able to work towards joy at God's generosity to our neighbor. That is the challenge of true Christian contentment, trusting that our God is providing for us what we need, even when our hearts long for more. It's important to say this doesn't mean that we can't ask God for things or work to better our station or pray against suffering. Jesus did those things, right? Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's praying, as he is sweating blood, he asks, is there another way? If there is, let this cup pass from me. But what were the next words out of Jesus' mouth? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I think as we think about coveting, that that is the key. Jesus takes his desire, this desire, a good desire to avoid suffering. And he makes it secondary to his desire to obey and honor his father. That is the work for us as well, to put every desire in its proper place, to set our hearts on God and then see what we begin to long for. We seek first the kingdom of God and then we find that all of these other things begin to be added to us as well. Or C.S. Lewis phrased it, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Now that's all, of course, easy enough to say, but it's extraordinarily hard to do, isn't it? Because every other influence in our life tells us that everything we want is just over the next hill. Just a little bit more money. If we can just lose a few more pounds, if we can just get a newer car finally. And yet I know that many of us have lived enough life to know that that doesn't work. We get there, we get to the thing that we thought we wanted and we find that it just disappears like smoke. It was all a mirage, it doesn't satisfy. And instead of stopping and changing course, we move the field goal posts and try again. 
Some of you will remember uh, the quarterback Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes back in 2005. He was relatively young, still new in the NFL. And at the time, he was, of course, the quarterback of the New England, New England Patriots. He'd just come off uh, a second Super Bowl. He was married to a supermodel. He was set for life financially. And so the tone of the interview is a little bit like, don't you have it made? And Tom Brady begins to reflect on it. And at a certain point, he says to the interviewer, I just keep thinking there has to be more than this. And the interviewer, almost kind of shocked, presses in and says, what is it? And like every pastor in the country is like, please say Jesus. (laughs) And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What's remarkable is that Tom Brady went on to play almost 20 more seasons of football after that. He ended up winning seven Super Bowls in total. He broke almost every record that a quarterback could break. And yet when he retired last year, if you remember, if you kept up with the news, he unretired a month later because he couldn't stop. He could not stop chasing something. Something that by his own admission, he doesn't even know what it is. Nothing satisfied. It's a warning that lots of rich and famous people have tried to give. So the comedian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. These are people who have been to the top of the mountain a mountain that so many of us would love to get to. And they're telling us there's nothing up there. And still we're like, I would like to see for myself. I'd like to try being rich just for a second, just to make sure. Maybe you weren't doing it right. Right, we just keep going. We know better. Perhaps you thought if I just got into the right school, if I just married the right person, if we can just get our kids into the right school, if we can just make it to retirement, if the investment account can just hit the right number, then we'll be okay. And time and time again, you got there and it didn't do what you wanted it to do. Me either. What hope is there for those of us who keep following the wrong maps? Who keep looking at what everyone else has and thinking, okay, if I can just get that... I will be happy. And the hope, as we've been saying every week, is Jesus. Of course it is. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had everything and he willingly gave it up for us. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go through all the indignities of life in this broken world. He didn't have to suffer and to die, except that he wanted you and me. And so he did. He did so willingly for the joy that was set before him, you, us. 
He was not willing to give up on us. There's a great scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan that uh, happens between Tom Hanks and Matt Damon. If you haven't seen the movie, Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, is, he's one of four brothers. He's fighting in World War II, and all three of his brothers are killed in action. And so the story gets back to the military, and they decide that that's enough for one family. And so they send Tom Hanks and seven men from his company to go get him and bring Private Ryan home so that the mom can have one of her sons back. And so the movie's about Tom Hanks and his men fighting to get to Matt Damon and then fighting to get him out. And at one point, there's a break between the fighting and um, Matt Damon and Tom Hanks are having a conversation about what you think about when you think about home. What do you think about when you think about what's back home? And Tom Hanks says, well, when I think of home, I think of something specific. I think of my hammock in the backyard or my wife pruning the rose bushes in a pair of my old work gloves. And he kind of pauses and starts to think. And while he's thinking, Matt Damon goes into this long story about his brothers. And as he continues to talk, Tom Hanks continues to have this faraway look in his eyes. And he's clearly thinking about home and about his wife. And as Matt Damon finishes his story laughing, he, he asks Tom Hanks to tell him about his wife and the rose bushes. And Tom Hanks kind of stirs from this moment of contemplation and he tells Matt Damon, no, no, that one's just for me. And I, I love that scene because it so perfectly captures the reality that some things are not meant to be shared, that some things are so sacred and so beautiful that they should not be given away. And I think part of what the Ten Commandments aim to teach us is that there is something God is not willing to share, something he is not willing to give away. And it is you. The commandments begin by telling us that we shall have no other gods. He will not share us. And they end, I think, in a similar place. By commanding us not to covet, God is saying, I will not turn you over to the desires that will not satisfy you. That's the really scary uh, thing that happens in Romans 1 and 2 is God, Paul talks about God giving people over to their desires and it's a punishment. You can have what you want. Your sinful desires, you can have them. And God says, I will not do that with my people. I will not give you over to things that will not satisfy you. And when we realize that we have a God who loves us like that, when that works its way into your bones, your desires begin to change. All of a sudden, you become a person like Paul, as he writes in Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13. These verses start to make more sense. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We often think the struggle to be content with, with little is really where the struggle is, right? You have to learn how to live without. That's the struggle of Christian contentment. But notice that Paul talks about learning to be content in abundance too. That may actually be the more pressing need for us. How do we be content with much? 
How is Paul able to do it in little or in much? He says through Jesus. He can do all things through him who strengthens him. Jesus is the one who says to us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Jesus, we have the one who gave up everything that we might have everything so that now we can lose anything because we trust that he will provide for us. He will take care of us. He has been faithful. He who did not withhold his own son from us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He is not holding out on you. He has given you the most precious thing he has to give. And so we can begin to trust. We can begin to be content. All of a sudden when our neighbor gets the things that we most long for and we do not, even as we grieve and continue to wrestle and ask God, we can celebrate with them. What a good God who pours out blessing upon blessing upon his people who has indeed given us all things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us as we prepare to sing. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us our covetous hearts, our eyes that tend to wander and like your word tells us of Eve that we look and see that something is good and we take because we want it rather than trusting that you will give us everything we need. Lord, would you reorient our hearts? Would you remind us again of the true maps that show us where true life is, even as these 10 commandments have reminded us that this is the life we were made to live, life with you, life of abundant provision that you will give us everything we need because you already have in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray you would send us out from this place, Lord, changed. Would we become more generous people, people who envy less because we know that you are good and our hearts have found their rest in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.